Emerald Podcast Series. Research that makes a difference. Thank you for tuning in to the second part of this podcast on research assessment, where I'm joined by Dr. Lizzie Gad, Dr. Noemi Oberbone, and Dr. Dasapta Erwin Arwan to discuss the challenges and opportunities for change to the current research assessment practices. So, in the first part of this podcast, we've discussed the responsible metric principles that are advocated in DORA or the Leiden Manifesto, among others. But institutions often struggle to apply this principle to design alternative research evaluation mechanisms. Lizzie, through your work with the INOMS Research Evaluation Working Group, which I've mentioned earlier, you've helped develop tools to support institutions in their effort to design better value-driven research evaluation process. Could you tell us more about this work and others work in this field? Yeah, well, this is exactly where the INOMS Research Evaluation Group have been turning their attention in terms of the design of a, a framework for responsible research assessment called SCOPE. Um, SCOPE is an acronym. It's a five-stage kind of process, although it was very iterative, obviously, which is it's, well, it's a mechanism for designing new or, or testing existing evaluations to see if they adhere to principles of responsible metrics. And the five stages are firstly to S, start with what you actually value about this thing that you're evaluating. Because so often we start with, well, what data have we got that we can use to measure, you know, the streetlight effect? Why are you measuring here? Except, sorry, <laughs> person has lost their wallet and they start looking under the streetlight uh, and somebody says, oh, why are you looking for your wallet here? And they say, well, this is where the streetlight is rather than where they actually lost it. You know, so we, we start with the data we have rather than with the uh, thing that we actually value about the entity that we are evaluating, right? So um, now that's a long step. It's, you know, it's really hard. We don't often sit down and think about what it is we actually value about research. We just kind of launch in with our bibliometrics or our, um, you know, how much money we've got, etc. So this, the second stage of scope is, is C, context in which you want to evaluate. Um, so considering all of the different contexts in which you want to evaluate, because often we have these conversations about, well, is the journal impact factor a good measure or isn't it? Well, for what? You know, what, who or what are you evaluating and why are you evaluating? And, you know, if you're just looking to uh, use bibliometrics to understand, you know, countries output production over the last you know, 15 years well actually bibliometrics is quite helpful for that if you're looking to assess which of these two candidates are best for a job well bibliometrics could be extremely unhelpful for that because there's all sorts of reasons at that level of granularity why one individual researcher might have more citations than another even within the same discipline so it's just teasing out what context in which you want to evaluate and making that part of our discussions around what is and what isn't responsible research evaluation the o of scope is then looking at your options for evaluating. So you're not starting with your options. Okay, I want to see which is the best uh, university or what options have I got. Options is stage three in the scope framework. And it's including both the quantitative and the qualitative uh, measures that we have for evaluating the particular entity in that particular context, given our values. You know. um, so it's encouraging as a rule of thumb to only use quantitative indicators for quantitative things like students and money and citations and qualitative indicators for qualitative things, you know, excellence, value, impact, those sorts of things. And then the P of probe is, is really, really important. And this is where a lot of our research valuation falls down. And that is to probe deeply the evaluation approach that you have designed, you know, and, and we, we, 
encourage folk to look at, you know, what might the, un the foreseeable uh, unintended consequences be, because it's not always easy to predict those. Um, but to look at, you know, who might systematically be discriminated against by this measure that you've developed, you know, year on year is the same, the same group of people, the same demographic going to be rewarded here. To look at the cost benefit, of, you know, to design the perfect um, research evaluation approach, which doesn't exist, by the way, just for <laughs> avoidance of doubt, but to, to design, you know, the very, very best quality research evaluation approach takes a lot of time and money, um, and you know what? What actual benefit are you going to get from that evaluation approach? And so there is a kind of a cost-benefit exercise to be done at this stage. And then e, the last stage of scope is to e, evaluate, and then evaluate your evaluations. So you're not just kind of thinking, right, done and done and dusted, move on, next project. But you're looking at you know systematically over time. How is this working for us? Do we still value those things? You know, is this measure systematically discriminating against a certain group? You know, that haven't we didn't foresee? So it's that kind of evaluation approach as being live and being a living thing, and not just a kind of one-off process. And scope works under three principles, which I think are really important. And the, the first is to evaluate only where necessary. So we know that research researchers, research institutions. Are, over-evaluated at the moment and it's causing mental health difficulties it's causing all sorts of of problems and we, we measure because we can often and individual researchers are just as guilty as th at this right you know we, we measure for pleasure as I call it we, we like to see how big our H index is and how we compare with our our peers and our our colleagues and you know we like to see how we're doing relative to the rest of the world and cyber and all those sorts of things we don't always have to evaluate certainly if we're trying to incentivize activity and i think open research is a good example here if you're wanting to incentivize open research you don't have to measure it there are other ways of incentivizing open research um, so evaluate only where necessary the second principle is to evaluate with the evaluated this principle of co-design of, of evaluation approaches and co-assessment and co-interpretation of those assessments with the evaluated communities. So we're not doing evaluation to people or to institutions, but we are evaluating with the evaluated. It just makes it a more meaningful outcome. And the third principle is to evaluate with your expertise. You know, there's so often, as I mentioned earlier, we develop evaluation design approaches which just would not pass peer review. You know, they, they, they would not pass an ethics process. And yet we are we are academics we we have research qualifications we know how research works we know what good assessment of, of various forms you know given our different epistemic differences um looks like and we should not leave that at the door neither should we assume that just because we are good at physics that we are therefore qualified to do a good evaluation you know we have to involve those that have the necessary skills in, in evaluation to to deliver it so that that scope and I, I we've used it in all sorts of settings all over the world it's being used by the uh, research england and the joint funding bodies in the uk to redesign the research assessment exercise it's being used all over by small uh, institutions individuals um, and, and larger funding bodies too as a kind of a, a high level framework around you know, the stages that we really need to include if we're going to have a half a chance at doing this well. The other kind of um, tool that's out there is, is space, which is developed by Dora. And obviously I'm not so qualified to speak about space, but that is a, a, a system, um, a framework that could be used by individual institutions to self-assess and see how ready they are to um, evaluate responsibly. And they can kind of plot themselves on this kind of matrix and see where, where they might want to um, improve their evaluation approaches.
So we talked about the initiatives behind the call for change for a more responsible research assessment and the frameworks available to design better value-driven research evaluation processes. But how would the implementation of those various initiatives look like in practice, starting with you, Lizzie? It depends because there's so many different entities that want to evaluate and things that they want to evaluate. But the way that we actually make it work, um, the way that we've kind of workshopped this and um, developed it, I suppose, is to work with institutions and organisations to um, firstly, I suppose, focus on this values piece. It is uh, You may be familiar with the Humane Metrics um, Initiative, which is a fantastic initiative. Uh, again, another global initiative has got European and US participants, where they have really um, developed a fantastic methodology for understanding, helping individuals understand what it is they actually value. <laughs> Um, and with a focus on the social sciences and humanities. Um, but this, this kind of piece of work around what it is we do actually value about the thing that we're evaluating is, is a lengthy process. And the way that we, we kind of get to the bottom of that with the scope process is to get a group of those stakeholders together, those who are being evaluated, those who are doing the evaluation, and to try and tease out what it is we actually value about that thing. And we have super values, which might be a single word like collaboration and or creativity. And then we have kind of values which is how those super values play out. And then we might have some sub values and some very specific practices or processes that, that are, are important in the embedding of those values. And we kind of just get to the bottom of that question first. And then we think about you know, the context and usually that is known by the evaluator. They know they want to create a KPI or they know they want to you know, identify individuals for funding and those sorts of things, but you know, having that very clearly stated. And then you move on again with that same group or with another group of stakeholders representing all of the parties, early career, different demographics, you know, the different uh, protected characteristics, etc, etc, to actually explore what the options might be for evaluating that value in that context and just really exploding it out. So we have a converge and diverge model. We kind of, what's, what's the art of the possible in this space? And then we kind of narrow it down again to what, what's actually feasible given our probe stage, I suppose, around what the cost benefit might be and what you know, tools are already out there. This is, we, we have to make it work and you know, and so the probe stage is next, and then and then you kind of you do your evaluation and run a final evaluation process. So looking at you know how did that work? Did we meet our evaluation aims there? Who was discriminated against in the end? Oh, I hadn't foreseen that. And then you kind of kind of cycle back around again. So that's how that's how we make it work in practice. Naomi, do you want to add anything? I just want to come back on a point that Lizzie mentioned about. Well, I mean, first of all, I'm I'm a strong supporter of scope. I think it's brilliant, and the way it's the way it's done is so concrete. I mean, anybody could follow it. It's a procedure, it, and it really brings the assessors to reflect on why they why they're assessing. So this is this is extremely important. It's one of the things that I found at the end of my thesis when I conducted all this work on research assessment on the potential problems of research assessment, then I realized, but why why are we assessing? I mean, what do we want? What do we value? Do we want to create capacity for researchers? Do we want to create individuals who have strong research skills? Do we want to impact society? Do we want to advance knowledge? Do we want to create knowledge with high research integrity? Do we want to create quality of knowledge? This is not even clear in 
in the type of assessments that we have. And I think the scope can bring that uh, up in, in the assessment process. Uh, so I, I'm really in favor of using it. In terms of yeah, how, how it would look like to implement these things in practice, well, I think it, it's, it's a gradual process always, and it's something that will come little by little. It's not that from one day to the other you change all your assessment procedures. Uh, it will require training also of the assessors so that they understand how to do it, because one of the big problems is uh, that the assessors are not necessarily trained on how they should assess people. And quite often the assessors are us, it's the researchers. So then we're facing a new assessment method and we're like, we're not sure what to do. And so I think it's really important to consider the aspect of uh, we need to provide training, we need to provide support, uh, awareness raising, so people are aware of how these changes should be implemented in practice. Dasepta. From what you said previously, it's, it seems that Indonesia is still a long way from moving away from more traditional research assessment processes, but, but perhaps there are some signs that this is changing. For example, looking at your own work as a, as a researcher, you are using a whole range of media to promote your research. In our assessment regulation, including uh, assessment of, of uh, research grant, assessment of promotion, like me, uh, I am in the process of promoting my, my uh, rank into associate professor, right? So the regulation uh, is clearly state that I need to have at least two papers in prestige journal. And what defines as prestige, one, is uh, the journal must be indexed in Scopus or Web of Science. That is no question asked. You only have to publish in journal that is indexed in Scopus and, and Web of Science. And the second one, it the journal need to have a, a, a metric. You, you can uh, use metric from uh, journal impact factor and also from Chimago Journal Rank. So in my uh, advocation, I keep saying that uh, because I, I cannot control uh, people to not use current metric, right? And to not use current way of our government uh, setting up the regulation in measure in assessing research, right? I cannot force people to do that. But what I can do is try to widen their mind, widen their perspective that even if you go with those metric, you need to have more uh, work or more ways to promote your uh, the papers itself, right? So, for instance, if I I aiming to publish in Nature, I need to have more diverse way to promote the Nature paper <laughs> to wider audience, right? It's kind of uh, my responsibility to the society. So I, I introduced the, the term narrative CV or um, translated articles is also a research output. Researchers need to do more work just to deliver the message, right? However, the, those uh, alternative 
uh, products is still not going to be used but at least uh, I need to promote it as way for the researcher itself to gain more credit and more acknowledgement from from common public common common people right so they can be more famous <laughs> than they already are because if you publish in certain journals you are maybe you only famous abroad not in indonesia right and the last thing in my uh, advocation i need to promote additional work that would require less less time for the researcher to work on right so for instance if if my paper is published and those prestigious journal actually i have nothing to lose to do another additional work right because the pub, the paper is published right uh, but i need to have additional product that don't consume uh, more time of of my time right so i propose several uh, simple ways for them to promote their work in more popular way in Indonesian language, such as vlogging, such as maybe drawing cartoon uh, in collaboration with um, local artists or lecturers that work in arts department, right? Just have to say something <laughs> and record it and then publish it online. So we talked about the initiatives behind the momentum for change with regards to research assessment. We also mentioned the frameworks and tools in place to help with the designs of alternatives and examples of implementations. Now, I'd like to explore a point that came up a few times already, um, and, and that is um, with this is a multi-stakeholders enterprise, one in which various people, sectors, etc., etc., need to be involved. Noemi, you're currently involved in an EU-funded project and on promoting excellent research. What have you found about the role of the research environment in fostering responsible research and research integrity? Thanks, Florence, for this question. So, so yeah, I'm part of the SOPS for ri project, which means uh, Standard Operating Procedures for Research Integrity. So it's, it's a very broad European project, and we're trying to build a toolbox. Actually, we built a toolbox uh, to help research performing organizations and research funding organization promote better integrity uh, in their organization. So we provide some resources, some existing guidelines to help them uh, change some of their procedures to foster better research integrity. And one of the first step of this project was to look at the kind of topics that were important to foster better research integrity. And we realized that to, to foster good research integrity, you, don't, you have to look way beyond research misconduct and questionable research practices because there's a whole array of other elements that come into play into uh, research practices and that influence the way that researchers work. So we, uh, we actually found a whole broad array of different topics that are really important for all these organizations to consider and research environment is one of these core topics it has a huge impact so for example researchers when they learn about science when they learn about success as well and about how what is successful in science well they are in an environment that has a specific research culture and that 
shapes the way they see science and they perform science. So, for example, the way that they interact with their mentors and how their mentors teach them about success will have an impact on that. Also, how inclusive the environment is. Do they feel safe? Do they feel included? Do they feel part of that environment? That has a huge impact on the integrity of their work. Uh, it's the same for the level of competition. So we know, for example, that quite often now there's a precarity for early career researchers, and that yield to that leads to very high level of competition between young researchers because there's only one out of 10 or two out of 10 that will able to continue in academia. So this has an impact on the way they conduct science. The same for the support that is available to them or, or the skills that they are able to build in their degree as young researchers, but also as older researchers, as, as uh, researchers a bit later in their career, do they have opportunities to build their skills? So all of these things are elements that we captured in the toolbox of the SUPS for RI project. And we provide uh, guidance on how to foster better uh, standard operating procedures in all of these areas. Uh, why is this relevant for research assessment? Well, more and more we're realizing that all these elements could be captured in some ways in research assessment at an institutional level. But they're also very important uh, that we build these healthy research environments so that researchers perform better research and they feel that the environment is allowing for them to perform. We really have to put that together uh, to make the environment supportive for the research, the assessment supportive for the research, and then in that supportive environment, researchers will be able to uh, conduct good science. Dasapta, did you want to add to this point on multi-stakeholders involvement in the reform of the research assessment landscape? If I uh, may say something for the to the uh, publisher community, I may suggest use uh, a more diverse way to promote their, their products. They can help me at least to to yeah to give more perspective to to our community here. So not only saying look our journal has journal impact factor maybe above five, right? Uh, not just saying that, but also uh, build the, the capacity our capacity because uh, we know that Indonesian people they they trust put more trust from people outside from Indonesia, right? Outside of their peers, then, then they're listening to, to fellow Indonesian. So yeah, I think that, that is the, the role that a publisher can, can do in the future. To conclude our discussion, what, what do you think are the next steps in the quest for a responsible research assessment landscape, starting with you, Lizzie? Yeah, I mean, I think we're probably all going to have exactly the same answer to this question, which is that, you know, research is an international endeavour and we therefore need to agree collectively and globally, you know, what um, good research evaluation looks like. And, you know, bearing in mind there will be local differences. But I think for those, you know, our researchers are highly mobile and just getting some sense of agreement, perhaps around core elements of, you know, where, where expectations on researchers globally um, so that we can perhaps design a kind of 
a skeleton standard narrative CV or uh, and particularly um, a better way of assessing at university level. Um, so we definitely need some kind of alternative to the rankings. And obviously, um, some of the work that I'm involved with in the INORS Research Evaluation Group is to consider you know, how we can help institutions to provide a more narrative, contextualised description, qualitative description of what they have to offer the world that goes beyond what the university rankings might seek to measure are called more than our rank. And that's something that we're working on at the moment and we're hoping to launch that in the autumn. But, you know, kind of taking that one step further, could we have some kind of uh, narrative CV for universities? Could we agree what the core elements of um, a uh, or even a, a selection of different types of higher education institution might look like to so teaching universities, kind of more technology-based universities, um, more research-intensive institutions. You know, there's wide range. We think of all, all universities are largely the same, but there's huge variety. Could we kind of develop some kind of uh, templates against which those looking to seek to work at an institution or study at an institution or um, fund an institution can assess those the, the offers of those institutions in, in a kind of more qualitative, uh, perhaps or combined with quantitative data um, way. Obviously, I'm aware, fully aware, that there are issues with peer review. We hold up peer, peer review as the gold standard of research evaluation, but it's hugely problematic. There's a lot we don't understand about it. We know there are inherent biases. There are language issues with kind of narrative CVs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But but there must be a better way, I think, of assessing both researchers, research groups, and institutions at both qualitative and, and quantitative ways. And could we develop some kind of agreement? Um, globally as to what those core elements might be. I think that would be a huge, huge step forward. And I think the other thing that I would say in this space, so we're currently doing a revisit of the Metric Tide um, report, which was published in 2015, um, just after the REF 2014, to consider the question of the use of metrics in research assessment at institutional level. And one of the issues that came up in one of the roundtables yesterday, which I thought was a really pertinent, pertinent and important point, is you know, we want to, we know we want to move away from shortcuts like the H index, like the journal impact factor, but we are seeking alternative shortcuts at the moment. And we're everyone's saying, well, qualitative uh, indicators that are too lengthy or qualitative approaches are too difficult to assess, are too time consuming, etc. But perhaps we have to accept, um, as a planet, that that good research evaluation does actually take time and give it the time and the resource that it needs in order to make these important decisions, particularly where, where funding is involved, where you know, reward or allocation of some description is, is involved. Perhaps we just need to accept that and give it the time that it needs. What about you, Noemi? Any, any final comments? Well, I, I also agree with what has been said about the, the need for a global agreement or, or at least a discussion that involves everyone uh, that is not just us in Europe, that is not just uh, America, that is not just the researchers or, or just the research institution or just the funders, but really a discussion that involves all the voices, uh, including the voice of early career researcher. And I always make a point to put that in there. Um, and I think we need to join forces uh, to have something that it puts us on the same on the same line so that we know that when we make change uh, it will be agreed on a global level it is something that everybody is aware of and that in that way i think we will 
move towards change in a much more efficient and more sustainable way. Um, I also like the point that Lizzie raised about having concrete tools to help us do that. I think this is missing sometimes. Uh, we mentioned the scope, we mentioned the space, uh, but there, these concrete tools uh, are very important in shaping the implementation of more responsible research assessment, giving good examples so that we can learn through mutual learning. So I know for example, Dora has the project Tara, I think, uh, that will collect some experiences from different research institutions. I think this is very valuable for uh, implementing the change, and it's something that needs to happen right now. Uh, but I want to take a step back a little bit from, from this whole grand transformation reform to also the researchers' level. Because as a researcher, I also see that I have a responsibility to change how I talk about success. And this is very small. It's very incremental. It's something that I do in all of my research practice. So, for example, when I talk about the papers that I publish, do I mention the journal name or do I actually mention what the paper is about? So these types of little things that we do in our everyday life they really are at the basis of the culture of research assessment. And I think we can make a change in that. So we're, we created this culture of research assessment together as, as a community. Uh, we are part of the problem. Uh, we are dealing with the problem, but we can also all be part of the solution. So as Lizzie mentioned, uh, there is this uh, tendency to measure for pleasure. Now there's uh, metrics on every little platform that I'm on. For example, ResearchGate, even Publins had metrics to compare my peer review with different researchers in my, in my institution. We really like to measure for pleasure, but I think we need as researchers uh, to also reflect why we measure, uh, how do we understand the metrics that we're using and how we speak about success. Dasapta? I don't see the change yes, the change would coming uh, in uh, in the coming years because uh, I can see that all the tools and resources uh, are still uh, mainly going to those metrics. But what I can see is the generation in the government is changing right now. So another generation is is born and going to take the responsibility as leaders in the Ministry of Education. So I think I need to talk to those generation, not the current generation that is, <laughs> that is uh, in, in, in taking the role, right? But uh, in all webinars, all meetings held by the ministry, if I have time, I come. And I cannot say the regulation is wrong, right? But I can say that the regulation is is too narrow to to support the mission and the vision of the ministry itself to going international. Because being international doesn't mean English, right? It's not. It doesn't mean uh, Western Europe. It doesn't mean uh, United States of America, right? Being Indonesian spreading the science from Indonesia as Indonesia also is an act of international people, international, the member of international community. Let's be international, right? True international without uh, uh, 
unnecessary barriers uh, and one of them would be language so language is our, only our way to communicate like like this uh, we are doing right now but uh, language is not uh, a criteria to to assess research lizzie you wanted to say one more thing it was just making me reflect um, of a blog post written by Tal Yarconi um, a few months ago called No, It's Not the Incentives, It's You. And it was kind of pointing out that, you know, we, we can very easily um, blame the incentives in science to you know, steal others' research and to publish in um, journals with kind of questionable policies and, um, you, you know, do, do all sorts of activities that are just, well, it's just the incentives, isn't it? That's why I'm doing it. Um, but actually, no, we do have uh, a set of principles as researchers. We do have a set of responsibilities as researchers to um, you know, in- engage in ethical and uh, responsible ways and to make our own decisions. We do have autonomy. I'm not saying the incentives are are not poor because they are poor and it does take a bit of a battle but certainly at the kind of grubbier end of um you know poor poor practice you know not everybody is engaging in you know stealing first authorship off uh phd students and some of these kind of other very very unhelpful and unethical practices so i think we do have to own our sense of responsibility and the sense of personal integrity as we're doing uh, engaging in research you know that's a fundamental principle of being a researcher is to you know have high standards for oneself and to do the things that are the right things to do not always the easy things to do Well, thank you all so much for your time and for this insightful conversation. I very much enjoyed it and it's very uplifting to hear about all the global initiatives currently in development to ensure a fairer and more inclusive way to evaluate research work, research environments and researchers. Thank you for listening to the second and final part of this podcast on research assessment. You could find a transcript of our conversation and more information about our guests on our website. This episode is part of Emerald's recently renewed impact manifesto called IUIN. You can find out more about this initiative by visiting the Emerald publishing website. I would like to thank our guests, Lizzie Gad, Noemi Oberborn, and Dasapta Erwin Arwan for taking part in this conversation as well as Alex Jungus at This Is Distorted.